The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. Welcome to a special edition of Create Your Shot. I am Tyler Laurie, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host up in Philadelphia, Chris Smalls Angelos. Smalls, Monday night. How are you today? I mean, I'm doing a little better than you, I'm guessing. Uh, the better question is, how are you doing? Just because I know you were at Game 5, World Series, Nationals. I need to get a glimpse into that experience, the atmosphere. And you got to give me the full rundown right now. Yeah, Smalls uh, is referencing me being upset because we actually had Max Scherzer scheduled to uh, be our guest this week. And then, you know, unfortunately woke up with some trap and neck tightness, a couple spasms, cortisone shot didn't work. So Smalls and I are riding solo. We couldn't even get Joe Ross to fill in for, for Max uh, for our interview tonight. But I don't know, Smalls. I'm doing all right, honestly. It it was a really, really fun experience. This past weekend wasn't super great for the Nats, obviously, to go from winning two in Houston and then scoring three runs in three games, which is the lowest amount they had scored in a three-game stretch this year was four up until this past weekend. But it was super cool to see Garrett Cole. I, I sort of wish, you know, last week when we were talking, I think we started – Wait, well, the World Series started last Wednesday, right? So – you guys are well, people who listen to the show are well aware that I had uh, have had a pretty good future on Bovada Sportsbook. And, you know, Smalls, you're not a hedge guy. And a couple other people I talked to are not hedge guys. And I, I listened to everyone that wasn't a hedge guy. <laughs> I was feeling super good when it was uh, 2 0. And, uh, I mean, it is what it is. But, for, I mean, Smalls, honestly, Sunday night was really cool. It was a, a very fun experience. We, we take the Metro down. The gates open an hour early because President Trump was coming to the game. And so I was really excited because the Nats do this thing up at the Bud Light porch where for when gates open till 30 minutes before first pitch, it's $5 Bud, and Bud, Bud Light and Budweiser pounders, which is like an unbelievable deal at any, great deal. Uh, at any establishment. Honestly, yeah. If, if I told you like we were going to go out in Philly – and you and you were going to drink sixteen ounce Bud Lights all night for five bucks. Like you'd be like, okay, let's do that, right? I'd be like, that's that's a good deal. That's what I would say. I would literally be like, that. I'm surprised it's not like eight dollar deal because apparently that's a deal now. So that's huge for a ballpark. Yeah, in a baseball stadium, and Game Five of the World Series. And so thanks to Donald Trump, who you know I don't want to get political on here, but like thanks for your service, Donnie. You got there an hour earlier, <laughs> so Bud Light Porch was over to four o'clock. You know, that's the best thing. That, that's probably the best thing Trump's ever done, you know, in, in my eyes, is that I got an hour more of $5 beers. And here's the thing, Smalls, kind of needed those $5 beers because things got real dark because we didn't know. I went to the game with my mom. She won, like, the ticket lottery or whatever, and I was up in D.C. anyway for uh, something else. And so I go to the game with my mom. She's a big Nats fan as well. And so we get to the arena, 
small as we get there, my mom's always runs early. So we're literally walking through the gates at like 4.05, right? It's like five, four and a half hours to first pitch. Great. So we're taking all these pictures or whatever. They're about to start batting practice. And this old dude next to me, who's just a Nats fan, literally taps me on the shoulder, Smalls, and he goes, can you believe our luck, luck with Max Scherzer? And I was like, yeah, man, Scherzer versus Garrett Cole. This is going to be sick. I'm so excited. I'm like, I'm just jacked. You know how I get. Yeah. And the guy looks at me and goes, are you serious? And I was like, yeah, man. Couldn't even ask for a better pitching matchup. And he goes, Max isn't starting. Oh, man. That's devastating. You didn't even find you didn't even find out via like Twitter or ESPN notification, and you were able to silently wallow in that despair. You had to find it out from an actual physical person, and that that reaction had to be priceless. I kind of wish that guy had a body cam on him, and that was just you know put virally on the internet because you you can go very high to very low, and I'm sure all Nats <laughs> fans did. And that would have been a priceless, could have been a meme, honestly, and would have been an awesome meme, create your shot, little Tyler Laurie down on his luck. So here's the thing, Smalls, right? Every, you know, you and your sports life and like everybody in their sports life, they have these moments, right? Where you just feel like you got punched in the gut. And so the guy says it to me and I immediately go to Twitter and I look and I say something to my mom about Max not starting. And she's like, that can't be true. And sure enough. And so one of the things that was really cool, I've never been to, you know, I don't know, Smalls, did you go to the Phil's, did you go to any Phil's World Series games? I, w- I got to one, the 2009, when they played the Yankees, um, and Alex Rodriguez hit the uh, camera with a home run, so tough. But you know what it's like when you walk into that type of stadium, especially when it's not a game, like when the World Series can't end that night, right? Yeah. It's just a cool atmosphere, and there's a ton of media, because like a typical baseball game on like a, you know, on a summer day, it's beautiful, but it's like. It's not a whole lot going on, right? You mm-hmm. see the normal people. There's not like a buzz, but like you walk in here and it's like the Fox set. Like Frank Thomas is like six five, four hundred and eighty <laughs> pounds. He's like two feet from me. It's like a whole. It's like amazing. So when the guy says it to me, I say something to my mom. It's not true. And we were able to actually walk down and we could hear the MLB Tonight guys, which was like Brian Kinney, like Al Leiter, that whole crew, Sean Casey. They were actively breaking that news, like talking about it, and we could hear it from the first row on the first baseline. So it was like a really cool moment, but also felt like I'd been punched in the stomach because then you're like, holy crap, like they just lost their last two games. It's Garrett Cole. Like, you know, you're not going to score five runs off him again. What are we going to do? So here, let me walk you through this, Smalls, because you're right. High to low. But how about this? Let's talk about the resilience of getting back to high. Okay. (laughs) So I go down there and I'm like, yeah, you know what? Max Scherzer, that stinks. And here's the one thing I will say. Max Scherzer is not the type of guy to not pitch unless he is physically unable to pitch. There are some guys that like, you know, maybe they're considered to be soft or whatever. Like this dude, his arm, I mean, there's no way he's pitching in game seven. Like it, come on now. If he couldn't pitch two days ago, like he's not pitching on Wednesday night if they're managed to force a game seven. But so I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, you know, count these guys out at your own risk. Where were you when Joe Ross shut out the Astros in game five of the world series? Like I had literally smalls convinced myself in to. my mind that Joe Ross was going to have his like, I don't know. I don't even know what type of moment, you know, like his, his like Rocky, his Nick Foles moment, Smalls, his Nick Foles moment where his Jeff Jenkins moment. There it is. Jeff Jenkins, (laughs) Matt, Matt stairs, Jeff Blum, all these guys that come up with these huge hits. Right. Cause I'm like this nationals team, 19 and 31 on May 24th. Everybody's heard about it. Like count them out at your own risk, but you know what I won't do? I won't count them out. Although I did go to Bovada and I did look and see what the price on the game was right before. Cause I was like, well, maybe I could hedge it right now. And uh, feel pretty good about it. So 
this, this like crazy situation happened Smalls. And it was like one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So that was like 4.45, right? So I met up with some friends. I left my mom in the seats, met up with some of my friends and made sure to take advantage of the $5 beers. You know, and the buzz is crazy. Like everybody's fired up. Like they got the George Mason band there playing. You know, they played Baby Shark 200 times before the game. But it's, there's a ton of people there. It's a total sellout. So around like, you know how like around 6, 7.30-ish when they start with like the ceremonial first pitch, they do like God Bless America, the anthem. It's obviously really long. Well, Joe Ross walks out to the dugout to just kind of keep throwing like near the bullpen. The guy gets a freaking standing ovation from an absolutely packed to the gills arena 45 minutes before his start. And it's, I'm telling you, it was like goosebumps moment. I'm like, oh my God, Joe Ross is going to throw no hitter. Like I didn't think anyone was, yeah. it was ridiculous. I remember sitting there being like, we're going to do this. This is, this is it. And then I went and got a couple more beers. But it's like those types of moments, like it's funny. You're going to tell me like you're trying to set yourself up in case they lose game six, they lose game seven or whatever. But that type of moment, to me, it's like I'm never going to forget being there for that. Because it's like, look, he didn't come through. He pitched fine. He pitched okay. He made one mistake. He got squeezed on the call, then gave up a home run, like whatever. But it's like the whole stadium was like ready for Joe Ross to like be the guy. And for Joe Ross, like that's a pretty cool moment, you know, like game five of the World Series, like last yeah. home game of the year. Like that was really special. And, you know, I, I felt really good about that as a fan. I felt like that was something that you walk away and you kind of talk about it. And obviously he didn't win, so maybe it's denigrated a little bit. But, I mean, shit, Smalls, like, that was really cool. Like, that made that specific moment worth it. Because I had people text me Monday morning and say, like, oh, you know, are you mad? You know, you spent X hundred dollars to go to the, tick- to go to the game and whatnot. And I just feel like if you think about it like that, it's kind of, you know, because your team is so infrequently going to win a championship. And the Nats are certainly not out of it. They got Steven Strasburg Tuesday night. Like, I feel great about that. But it's like you go for those types of moments, you know? And, and I thought, like, that part of the game was really, really cool. And so he, he, he walks George Springer. And then they haven't gotten Jose Altuve out all, all series. And then he gets Altuve to ground into a double play. And I was so geeked up. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was like, all right, he's not throwing a perfect game, but the no-hitter's still intact. And then he gave up a two-run homer in the second inning, and I was like, oh, this, this could be real tough. This might be real tough. Well, you know what? That's the way you got to approach it. If you're there, you can't be down. You got to just be super positive. That's part of the experience. I think what we've really learned through what you just said is that, yes, everybody, um, I know you all thought differently, but Tyler Lurie, he is a human. Uh, so that's exciting. That's breaking news. A little breaking news on uh, create your shot. You're totally human. Uh, you know, you you are the most practical person, uh, analytical that I really know personally. So this is just exciting that I know in your heart of hearts, you do believe in the clutch gene. You do believe in all of this stuff, momentum, all of this different stuff that you but maybe you don't believe it now but you believed it in that moment let me tell you something it was a really fun you know when we get on this show or whatever and we spend a lot of time and this is the same thing in coaching like you spend a lot of time like breaking things down and trying to put yourself in the best position and small as you are aware of this not a lot of people are but like baseball really was like my first love because like it's the most statistical sport out there and I think that's why you know we talked to Seth Everett about like how he thinks baseball is getting ruined because of that because of shifts and like three true outcomes and stuff but I think it's pretty freaking awesome that you can literally look at all the stats and try to put your, you know, this perfect team on paper to counter every advantage another team has. And unfortunately, like the Astros are the best at that. Like 
granted, got some pretty terrible people in their front office and the way they do business isn't great. But it's just like, so I did say this, Smalls. I would say I probably told easily 30 people that I didn't know that the Astros had the lowest WOBA weighted OBA or whatever against sinker against sinkers of all the pitches thrown to them over the year. And I was like, Joe Ross is a sinker ball, lowest Woba against sinkers. I said that so many times in the first two innings of the game last night. Like, Bovada probably had that prop at, like, 10, and I easily said it 35 times. So so you're saying, like, hey, you don't believe him. You believe in momentum and clutch, and that is true. Like, I was ready for a moment, you know, because sometimes, sometimes, like, you can feel it, right? Like, you can yeah. feel the moment's going to happen. And I, I remember, and I've, we've obviously talked about this on the show before, but I remember – against Penn State when we were both managers like I remember feeling like we were going to beat Penn State at the buzzer like I remember feeling like Juan was going to make that shot and last night I swear I had that same feeling I was like holy crap like Joe Ross is going to throw in one of those performances where like in 40 years you turn on an MLB network and for some reason it's like Astros Nationals game five of the 2019 World Series and Joe Ross is spinning a gem but I still did have to get in the the nerd stats like look at fangraphs.com i got my phone connected to the to the wi-fi in the stadium like but it was i mean i don't know smalls like that stuff is it's it's really fun like i i hope you i want people to understand that like they lost and it sucked and i'm not gonna be like a mr like hardo and be like well they didn't win so it wasn't worth it because it was where it was totally worth it like it was 100 percent worth it and the 30 for 30 would have had the you know soundtrack like ever Oh, I found out Max Scherzer had so much confidence in Joe Ross. They would have went to each player. It would have been like a magical day in history. They would have found some things like the stars were aligned. There was a blue moon over and the, uh, there was a blue moon that night, whatever. That would have been a sick 30 for 30. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. But you made a good point there. Statistical like analytics and things like that. Baseball being driven that way. And I think the difference between baseball and we talk a lot, obviously we interview basketball coaches mainly having the time in baseball to make those analytical decisions makes it much more of an analytical sport. Whereas basketball, yes, there's so much data out there. There's so many things you can do with your lineup, but it's such a fast game. Uh, There's so many quick decisions that it does get a little difference in basketball, but we've talked to so many coaches and I just think about Jordan Sperber on this podcast and uh, Nevada Smith and how they integrate analytics within basketball. And that's just developing at a rapid pace. That's coming closer to the baseball element. How do you use statistics to get the most optimal performance out of your basketball team and maybe win one or two more games throughout the year that maybe you shouldn't have won, but you can use analytics to coach your team and produce wins and get to an NCAA tournament or whatever that may be. So I do think that baseball, baseball really started off. It's been analytical for so long. Yeah, it might be in the media now that analytics is taking over, but I think that's starting to gain in other sports. I mean, we you've gotten into hockey too, ice hockey, and there's so much of that data being poured into different sports and it's becoming more scientific and it's interesting to talk to those different coaches on this podcast about that. Hold that thought. I want to. I want to talk about that. We got to take a quick break. Uh, I do want to shout out. If you like our show, you will also really like the official Lakers podcast on Podcast One. Lakers best drama in sports right now. LeBron's hair is falling off. Anthony Davis is making fun of him. They're they're worse than the Clippers. For you know, it's it's fun. 
But uh, join Emmy Award-winning sports reporter Susie Schuster and co-host Aaron Larsoul as they discuss the Lakers news of the day, break down the games from the week, and have exclusive interviews from players, coaches, and sports personalities. So don't miss the official Lakers podcast every week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Small, it's interesting you mentioned that about analytics because I do think hockey and basketball are interesting case studies and football is probably a little bit closer to baseball because you do have the the time. time. Mm -hmm. Whereas like in basketball, you know, you talk about me being analytically inclined, but in your career as a, as a coach at Philadelphia university, now Jefferson Rams, you frequently tracked side to side shot data, like shot distance, shot location points per shot to the point where we used to actually make fun of you for scraping basically your own data, mainly because you did it by hand and you watched 35 games. But like you saw value in that as an assistant in like, you know, 2014, 2015 and did that all on your own. And like I said, worked yourself to the ground. Maybe, you know, could have taken a couple like C++ classes, found a way to use a, you know, a computer programming equation to, to get that data for you. But it, it's very interesting because now we're, we're starting to just I don't even want to say that like analytics is used as like in a, like a negative light, but I don't know if you saw the Kevin Durant, like Matt Moore argument on Twitter. And it wasn't even really an argument where Kevin Durant was like, nobody wants to look at any fucking graphs when they're like, but it, it is, it is really interesting because those two sports and like hockey and basketball, they're so free flowing. It's very, very hard to control one play to the next. Whereas in baseball, I mean, here's the thing. If you're watching a game and you're paying super close attention Last night, like in, in counts where you knew Garrett Cole was going to be like more weight weighted to throwing his breaking ball there, uh, against maybe his high fastball, like if it was 1-2 or 0-2, something like that, and he's trying to get a guy to chase, it's going to be weak contact. The Astros were shifting damn near every pitch. Like it was unbelievable. Like as soon as they would see what the catcher's sign was, you could see Correa or you could see Altuve like motioning and, and they would shift on separate pitches. Whereas in basketball, you really can't do that. And it, it just requires, you know, much more, I think, thinking from players and not so much data because it it is hard but i don't know smalls i do think there is kind of a i don't know what the right word is like it's like more coming together in basketball and hockey where teams are realizing like it's more important to try to game plan around your analytics and then kind of let the chips fall where they may rather than trying to control it from a, on a possession to possession basis if that makes sense i agree with that and i think you bet for young coaches i think the best yeah, you can collect all this data and now synergy. Obviously, everyone kind of has synergy and different, you know, uh, outlets to find that information. But as a young coach, I don't think it's about collecting all of that information or making sure you look at every single stat, how far a shot was out, um, you know, left side versus right side versus corner versus transition, all that stuff. Yeah, you want to collect that data, but it's in basketball to me, it's how do you communicate to the players that's valuable how do you teach it in player development but how do you not over communicate that that's the key right because if you're starting to tell a player who's played his whole life and really works with the flow of the game that hey if you move over a foot over this way you're gonna have a higher percentage on a shot now they're thinking about that my guess and i don't know this to be true but if you don't communicate that correctly or do it within a drill without saying move a foot over, then that player's going to start thinking about that. They're probably going to perform to less of those statistical value that you've created or that you found within Synergy. So for young coaches out there, I think it's 
taking that data, internalizing that data, and then figuring out the best way. Okay, player development. I don't necessarily let let's just work on dribble handoffs from this spot and tell them, hey, I want you to V cut in here and just come off and shoot the ball and put them in that situation. So now in the game, they know I want to walk my guy down there and I'm going to come off a handoff, get that and shoot it. That's part of I think difference with when you talk about difference with sports, that's basketball data. And that's how your coaching become come with. You want to actually have value as an assistant coach or as a head coach. How can you put that data easily for especially a college basketball player, a kid who's 20 years old, who's going to class and then he's coming to work on his player development and trying to learn an offense. That's how you can become a really good player development guy and help your team win. Well, you know, and I think that's what Stephen Griffin kind of pointed out that he learned in Dallas is like you, you watch film, you use the numbers that you see and you decide like, okay, what's statistically significant? What, is, what have I seen over a large enough sample? Like what types of plays have I seen? And then how do I use that film to el- illustrate my point? Because here's the thing. If you just say it, it probably doesn't mean shit. You know, like I, I've, I think I've gone over this before, but in the, when I was working for the 87ers, now Delaware Bluecoats, like we exhaustingly tracked shots and paint touches and corner fills like every single day by hand like in practice in every single five on five drill like we tracked it and so obviously one of the hardest things to kind of communicate was like okay well our guys going as hard as they need to go every day in practice like our you know how much are you stopping it but like they wanted to get as big enough a sample as soon as possible to be able to make changes and make definitive kind of statements about players and how they were going to be in the future and i think for coaches, it is very easy to look at certain analytical things and be like, okay, mid-range, that's bad, which is three is better than two. That is certainly correct. But do you have the guys to play that way? Can you play pack line? You know, are, are you going to allow, you know, 0.8 points per post up? Or are you, do you not have a good center? Or are you playing against a team who's terrible at the rim? And so you can exploit those inefficiencies. It's much harder to do it without a larger sample and a ton of, you know, film data than to just say like, okay, here's what I hear Daryl Morey saying that he does, or here's what I hear Masai Ujiri saying that this is how they want to play and Nick Nurse back this up. Like, and I think that's a lot of what we've heard from like Nevada, Jordan Sperber, Taylor Jenkins is that like, you need to pick and choose how you want to play. And then you need to drive that to your players and then change, I think, your approach analytically. It's, it's harder to do it if you don't know what you have first. And that's where I think it blends the two together. You know, whether it's like eye test, whether you're Doug Collins and all you want to do is just watch or, you know, you're, I don't know, Smalls, who's Mr. Analytics? You're Gabe Kapler, RIP to a legend in Philly. But, you know, you don't because you don't want to coach just like a computer program either. I think that doesn't work as well, especially not in, in basketball. Well, I think you make a really good point about visualization for your players, too, when you're watching film. And, yeah, I think we all talk about. I got some good advice earlier in my career, you know, when you're watching film and I'm not a, you know, I wasn't a college basketball player, so I needed that advice and it may seem obvious to others, but when you're playing a really good team, let's say a team is 15 and two and you watch and they were on a 10 game winning streak. Well, if you don't watch, you have to watch their two losses. How did they lose? And then how does that team who beat them compare to your team? That's a big value when you're looking to beat a hot team. And that's a topic I always think about. It's how did that team lose that team? And do we compare or how can we put ourselves in positions 
like that team won. Okay, that team beat them because they played a 2-3 zone and they forced, they just ran their shooters off. They completely let a kid ISO 15 feet, let him shoot mid-range. If he scored 20 points and he only averaged 10, they won the game because they limited their other stars or their other players. There's ways to watch film and then show that film on a scout or to your players and say, Hey, this is, you know, how they play defense. We play a similar way. We can play a two, three zone, but we've got to make sure we find the shooters. We run them off and let this one player or two players shoot. And when they come in with a different lineup, this is what we can expect. You can do that through film in two, in two minutes and players can get it rather than putting a hundred notes on the scouting report. You know, and it's funny, Smalls, too, because I think this gets into how do you prioritize? And this is maybe something, you know, next week when we get back into normal interviews, like we probably need to talk to more assistants about this and how they do this. But because if you are, you know, if, if, you know, how do you prioritize your scouting schedule? Like how many games are you watching? Like, what do you deem to be a good benchmark for that? Because like I said, we know guys that watch five. We know guys that watch three. I know some guys that watch 10 games, but like, if you're in conference play, does it matter? Like, okay, let's just use Temple for an example. Like, if, if Temple's playing, I don't even know, Wichita State, does it matter if they have Wichita State against, like, Texas from, like, game number three? Like, and I think that's the part of, like, how do you, how do you prioritize, like, okay, self-scout over opponent scout? And then also, how do you blend that with, like, recruiting? Like, at the same time, you still have to recruit. You still have to get on the road. So, like, we, we may be small, should, should talk to guys as they get, have they gotten older in their career about, how they kind of go about scouting. How do they get better as a scout? Like, how do they decide what was significant when they saw it? Because you know how it is. I mean, you see teams that run, I don't know, 50 different sets. And then you see other guys that have, you know, like wide open motion dribble. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, all right, well, what do you decide to pull out onto the court so that your boss feels comfortable? I mean, for you, Smalls, what, what do you do? Yeah, there, I don't think there's any one way to do it. I think you have to feel comfortable, but you have to also, like you just mentioned, you have to know your own team, how your own team learns. Just like anything, if you're teaching a subject and 80% of your class learns by visualization and you know they need like examples, like I, I think about it like, I don't know, like a science class, right? You do labs and things like that. And if 80% of people learn at a higher rate, by doing labs and things like that, then you have to make sure you incorporate a lot of visualization. Uh, to your point about basketball, how I do things, I've completely evolved, I think. I like to take a loss. If we've played that team a year ago, conference play, I always make sure, and Coach McGee really likes when he actually needs, and I agree with him, you need to see yourself playing because your players are going to see themselves and they're going to respond better to that on film when you can point stuff out uh, to them. So I like to pick a game where we've played them, hopefully, even if it's in the past, so a year ago. I like to pick a loss or two. And then, you know, some winning games where the other team performed really well. Because you have to mix in a lot of the team's success, right? And you're always trying to show made shots and when they run a really good set and it works to perfection because that's what you have to prepare for. You have to how prepare. often do you value when a team doesn't play well? Like, how are you able to, this is, this is a, this is a, this is like a fascinating question. So maybe we're just having this be your episode to create your shot. But like, <laughs> but to, to you smalls, like how do you value a team when they, you know, cause you can tell when guys play well and when guys play poorly, but how do you judge like whether a certain team played poorly because the other team had a really good game plan. And then, how do you decide, okay, can we execute this type of game plan? Because, you know, it's, it's, 
it's not as easy as like, you know, you watch Syracuse shut down Duke because they play two, three zone. And it's like, Oh, we can two, three zone. Like, well, you can't, you can't. Yeah. We're not length. Like you have to know your team. Like we, we talked about earlier, like, are we, do we play enough two, three? Oh, okay. We play 96% man. We've seen our zone in practice. It's probably not best. I'd like to pick a loss where they've had man, or at least they struggled. Um, the other scenario is did that team play out of their minds? Did they make everything they looked at that was contested, like contested shots, and they still won the game? Like that that happens. I do and think now, I do think that's right, Smalls. Like the prevalence of like college basketball players are are talented as shit. And it's like at some point we should just acknowledge that like you're gonna have some games where you play really well. Like they, I, I say this all the time, and this is the crazy this is you know, getting back to baseball, but like you watch pitchers. And like, guys are like, God, how do you swing at that? And then you watch what pitchers do and you're like, all right, and major league baseball pitchers are just amazing. And then sometimes hitters are just better and you just tip your cap and that stuff just happens. And I think coaches, and you can't be like this, I guess, but like coaches, sometimes I think it's just like, Hey, guys make plays and it just happens. And you're just like, damn, like, all right, we defended it perfectly. And the guy made a better play. And like, that's what happens when you get to the highest levels. And I think people don't realize how good guys at all levels of college basketball are. This this hasn't. This isn't like a revelation or anything, but again, you know, I've pretty much predominantly been under Coach McGee. And, you know, one thing he talks about, and I take it as gospel, and it is it's can you steal baseline out of bounds play defensively? Can you steal baseline out of bounds play offensively? So their defense is lined up this way, and you can make the right call based on film. Can you stop or get a turnover on a man set, on a zone set? on a baseline out of bounds play, because that's when you talk about, all right, we stole eight points from film. And then can you, at the end of the day, your principles, you set up your players to play defensive principles. They know what's coming and you might take away two to three points from that team. Now you're talking about 11 point swing and you're putting your team in the best position to win. That's why you put everything on film, baseline amounts, sideline amounts, after timeouts, end of game situation because if you're at least prepared and you can steal a game or you can steal points you're either tightening the margin or you're exceeding the margin and you're actually winning the game and at the end of the day it probably scouts are probably more for the coaches to make sure you prepared um but it's great when you can see your players just execute a baseline out of bounds play or steal one of theirs uh and it makes them more confident I think that's what you ultimately look to get out of film. And when you look back on the game and you start to break down the game that you just played, it's like, okay, that's how we won the game or that's how we kept it close. So we took it to overtime and ended up winning. You know, I don't know. I'm sure there's analytics on all that stuff, but it's, it's about preparing your players and putting them in positions where they're confident to execute. You know, and your, and your point is valid because like, I don't know how many guys, like, let's say, all right, let's just use an example. Like, let's say you guys are playing, I don't know, Dominican, right? And you win that game. Do you, as the coach who has the next scout, let's say it's Goldie Beacom, like, are you going to watch the Dominican game and be like, all right, what, can, what am I taking from this? Or are you like, okay, well, now we're on to the next program. And I think you're exactly right, Smalls, because it's, it's just a constant level of preparation. And I know for a fact that, um, you know, I, you and I talked about this, but talk to some people over the summer that were like interviewing for a specific position. And that was just the job of the position was just self scout, like mm -hmm. to be a master of what you guys do and be able to work with the head coach and whatever assistant had the next scout to be like, okay, this is what I've seen from our team specifically 
over the last 10 games and not focus on what the other team is doing. So that way you were covered on both sides because some people do forget kind of what's going on between the lines in their own you know situation because they're just trying to stop the other team. And it's, you know, often it's not always that. And I think like that's kind of interesting to see that kind of evolve. And that's more, you know, when we blanket statement analytics, I think that's more what I judge this as like, I would say analytics is, is trying to gather as much information as you can and gather as much significant information as you can. Right. And that's what I would say it is. So you can use all that information and wade through it and decide what you feel is important to you and running your own program or you as an assistant and running your position groups. You know, and I think that's the part of it where it gets kind of a bad rap because everyone just immediately goes to like, oh, nerds can't play basketball. And it's like, it's not that, you know, it's just trying to be as prepared as possible because once the game starts, you have no control over what happens because you can't make any shots, you know? Oh, no, I I totally agree. And again, to your point, I think self-scouting is something you mentioned. Uh, Jimmy Riley, who's the associate head coach at Jefferson and you know, I have a ton of respect for Jimmy and I've learned a lot from Jimmy. He's a big time film junkie. And I obviously was at high school for the last two years, but now this year, one thing we're starting to do is after, you know, we had a scrimmage and we're not going to get into the details because it's private, but scrimmage, we're going to watch, we're going to pick three players, have three players that we're assigned to. We're going to show them the film of what they did well. And then a couple points of what we can do better. And that's where I think self-scouting can help where, you guys are actually seeing your last game a little bit and it might only take 20 minutes and we're eating dinner and stuff like that and showing them what they did well in that game and what they can improve. And then, yeah, as soon as the next scout starts, it's Goldie Beacom and, you know, we've got to look at their tape and all the different numbers that go into that. But I think self-scouting is really important and something as a season gets really hectic, everyone kind of puts on the back burner and they don't, but most people do. And it's probably more important than we think uh, than actually scouting the next opponent because what you do when things break down and what you can do instinctively in basketball is much more important than what you can do while you're thinking of a particular set and how a team's going to run it. A lot of basketball now and probably in the past as well is pretty much read and react. Like sets aren't exactly orchestrated to be, hey, the flex offense screen across, screen down, blah, blah, blah. It's read and react. It's, okay, he refuses to screen. He comes off. He pops. He's going to roll. Then I'm going to fill, and it's spacing. So that's more, if your players can react to that, defensively you're going to be better, and then offensively you're going to be a lot better because you know when someone leaves a space or when they switch, this is how you're going to go or this is the move you can make. So I do think a lot of self-scouting is becoming more prevalent in basketball, and I th- I think it increases the value of your player output yeah I, I would agree and i think like i said as we get into this and as the season starts because i mean it's pretty damn close to november you know i think we got two weeks until games start obviously like you said you you made a faux pas as a coach and talked about a secret scrimmage and that's like the biggest no-no ever you're just gonna get in trouble it's not, it wasn't just, secret only jeff goodman's allowed it was open. To, uh, so anyway i think we'll, we'll talk more about that i do want to shout out a couple more things just about the world series real quick uh, no, from my seats, they were not close enough for me to see the two girls who uh, flashed the picture <laughs> behind the plate. That was a super funny moment, though, because Garrett Cole, is he works decently fast in the sense that he goes right after guys. 
but he is really weird on the mound. Like he rubs the ball up a ton. He'll throw a bunch of balls away. He calls time a lot. So in that moment, they got a really late timeout, right? Yeah, so I saw I, that. So yep. I was like, what? I was like, I like was mad about the ump. I was like, what the heck? Like, how can you give him time there? Like, this is really weird. And then I got a text like two minutes later that was like, do you think Garrett Cole called time because he saw these chicks flashing him from behind the dugout? So that was really, really funny. And then the other thing that was crazy, I, I'm telling you, the Nats scored three runs in three days, right, Smalls? But as you know, when you're at sporting events that are like a big deal, the crowd like is dying to get into it. Right. Oh, yeah. So like anything that any tiny thing that can happen, the crowd wants to get into it. But there were three crazy moments, right? One was the Joe Ross standing ovation. The third one was Victor Robles getting squeezed and then booing the umpire. And the other one was them announcing the president. That was the loudest <laughs> I've ever heard booing and chanting in that moment. And I think like the crowd that fired up the crowd more than anything. Like after that, the crowd was right back in it. I I went to check the live line on Bovada right after that happened, and uh, the Nats were still significant dogs, but, um, you know. I'll tell you one live line that should be a line, and they're going to have to do it by noise volume, but any home, when you're, the home team's obviously up and they hit a deep fly ball, oh my God. how loud that crowd gets. I would love to have like an over-under on noise level for every deep fly ball because Every time it's hit, no matter where, it, if it's a fly ball, it is arousing like, <gasps> and, <sighs> and if it's your, if your, your team's up to bat, people go crazy. And if not, then they're like, it's the whole like air out of the arena thing. So we'll have to call Bovada and get that taken care of. Uh, we'll get out of here on this fun episode. I just wanted to kind of go over it. We'll be back with a normal interview next week. Uh, as always, uh, I am at CYS Tyler on Twitter, Smalls at Chris Angelos 88. And then we are at create your shot. On Twitter, create your shot pod on Instagram, create your shot on Facebook, create your shot at gmail.com. DMs are open. Send us an email. If you do like what you hear, uh, you can give us five stars, shoot us up the ranks, get, get us more money so I can uh, afford to go to Houston for game seven. <laughs> uh, Nats plus 600 on Bovada for the series. And Steven Strasburg, greatest postseason pitcher of the last 50 years, is a, a dog, I think plus 165 for uh, Tuesday night. So, not sure if you're going to get a value on a guy that's the best postseason picture since Sandy Koufax. But Big game. Doubt the Nats at your own risk. They've had their backs up against the wall a bunch. I am cautiously optimistic, understanding that the Astros are certainly a better team. And it's I'm hoping for game team. seven, man. I really yeah. am. In the words of Kevin Millar, you don't want to give any team life. Don't, don't let them win tomorrow. That's all I'll say. Do not let them win tomorrow. If you're the Astros, you want to win. Uh, and then one other thing I do want to shout out, just a real quick show, but uh, City of Basketball Love and our guy Josh Berlin site is back up. Check out the Patreon, and uh, you know, good on you, Josh, for continuing to get Philadelphia basketball a lot of coverage. And Smalls, you know, I think you guys, when's your first game at Jefferson, just so we can keep track of it? Yeah, November 9th and tenth, uh, we play in. Everyone plays kind of an opening tournament. We play at uh, American International AIC. We'll play Franklin Pierce first and AIC second Saturday and Sunday. We're going up to the Hall of Fame on Thursday. We're going to practice at the Hall of Fame. Check out Coach McGee's bus. And I've never been to the Hall of Fame, so it's it's going to be a pretty cool experience. We're going to get up a couple of days before, and I think that's what it's all about, right? If you have a trip, Division two, three, one, you know, it's about getting the experience of where you're at, and I'm excited that our guys get to do so. So I'm excited for the season to start, and you never know what's going to happen. Palpable buzz, uh, as John Rothstein would say. Baseball season will be over Wednesday night. Hopefully the Nats are hoisting the trophy, and I come back up to D.C. for the parade. But 
we are going to dive we are going to dive headfirst into college basketball and NBA stuff uh, starting next week. So hope you enjoyed this little mini episode, kind of talking about our experience. And as always, we appreciate everyone who listens, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you.